Back to the Future, as you see a clip just in front of you from the movie, and it does correlate to what we're going to be talking about um, this morning. You know, if you notice that he seemed to have a weakness there, he seemed to think that he was bold every time that someone called him chicken, and he would think that if someone called him chicken, he had to prove that he was strong and bold and reacted. And as he reacted, he got himself in a lot of trouble. Sometimes with reactions, we get ourselves in trouble. We might not say the word to ourselves, but we might at least lean towards that thought to say, hey, I don't want anybody to think that I'm weak. I don't want anybody to think that I'm afraid. I don't want, to think, I want anybody to think that I'm fearful, so I'm going to do something even though it may not be the right thing to do just so that I can prove to myself that I'm still bold and courageous and strong. But it seemed throughout the movie that Michael J. Fox playing Marty, he would always fall into that trap of having to make this reactive response rather than thinking through before he responded. And see, a lot of what we're going to talk about today and what we've been trying to talk about even last week is we have to create a culture here. Sometimes we have to go back in order to move to the future. When we think about the play on words of back to the future, we got to look back at the first century, even prior to that, like we did last week, but the first century and how the church started and how it had boldness and prayer to carry them through a world and a culture of opposition. Now think about it, not only Rome, but also the Sanhedrin and Judaism and how they came across as fighting against Jesus and the so-called the way, not even called Christianity yet as we look at the first part of the book of Acts, is that it's the way and a movement that was happening in a culture that they were trying to set. And as they're creating this culture, they didn't know what to do because they had the opposition. And any time that they would hear them speak about this so-called Jesus, they would be in trouble with the authorities. And so the authorities made sure they set a parameter saying, you can't do certain things. You can't speak about this Jesus. We're not going to allow you. You have to submit to our authority and work inside of what they would call the religion of Judaism and the Sanhedrin being the leadership. And so as we think about all of this, we, we have to realize that what are we doing as a culture of boldness right here? As a people of God, even in this local assembly, as they call the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ, what are we doing here? Do we believe that the church exists solely by how we do church? Or are we to be the church? And they assembled, as we know in chapter 1, in a room praying together. And now they're in the, what we call the local area in the temple. As we just move along slowly in the book of Acts, we see that the narrative is clear. Because what the narrative is, is now they're moving along on the field. And they're in the temple around those people they call Jews that were religious Jews. And so we, we as, a, as a nation... As an area, we've got to ask the question, and we want to make sure we ask these questions. Should the church agree with a world that's surrounded around them or be different from it? You know, years past, I remember a time when we would do that. 
We would be concerned about being different from the world around us. We didn't want to join the world. We wanted to be different from the world. And as we're different from the world, they would see Christ in us. But because of what has happened in the last couple of years and the crisis that we've been living with around us, it's health, it's political, it's injustice, whatever it is, we're struggling to find unity and we're trying to find unity in our world where is that the right thing to do? Aren't we supposed to be different from this world? Aren't we supposed to be? So should the church stand up or stand down with the world? Should they stand up against this world or stand down? And so with, when we stand up with or we stand down and we're standing against, what's the fight? What are we supposed to be doing? See, when, when should we stand up with the world? Is that a no or yes Question. I mean, should we answer it that way? When should we stand down with the world and to stand against it? As we have been dealing with COVID, as I stated in the last two years, and now it's coming, it's, it's within two years now, it's 19 months, this invisible virus continues to influence how we think, how we live, how we have community or not. Every thought has continued to affect everything we do. It's paralyzing us as the church. When should we make a stance or back down and just let it go? As we navigate through this unfortunate time, what should we do? Many of us have various opinions with our own wisdom and intellect. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to come up with a way to get out of this chaos. But we don't know, so, so, so let's just say, let's fight. Let's just fight. Let's protest. Let's prove who's on the proper side of this argument. Is that how we should fight as Christians? I mean, is that what we're learning? Look, look we can do this. We can say, I'll be proactive in prayer and passive in action. Let go and let God. That's the, that's the approach I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep praying. But the question is, how often are we praying? We know the average person's praying three to five minutes to the average Christian and seven minutes for the pastor. So that's, that's, that's a clearing of a conscience is pretty much what it is. But now it goes, now well, let's take another step. Let's take another approach. Proactive in prayer and proactive in action. Listen to this. They say, I'll pray, but I'm going to fight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll pray, but I'm going to fight. You see where the energy is? So we're fighting with a lot of energy, but we're, we might just be praying just a little bit. Or we can just say, you know what, proactive in action, pray after, or proactive in action with no prayer. So we can take action and pray a little bit as we go, or take action and just saying, listen, this isn't a matter of prayer, let's do this thing. <laughs> and so we're, we're puzzled, we're not sure, how should we fight? You know, I think, how did the apostles fight? How, how can we learn from them? I mean, they had opposition, as I just stated. And how, do, how, do they, how did they deal with it? And how are we dealing with that as a church? They're the church. It's the new age. The Pentecost has come. They're in chapter 3 and chapter 4. How did they deal with this? We're going to look at chapter 4. And so we want to continue to ask these questions. Then there's another question. You know, how, when was the last time Grace Church prayed together to stand out as believers in the society? When was the last time we got together corporately? I'm not talking about just individual. Listen to me. I'm not just talking about individual prayer. I'm sure each one of us are doing some prayer. But when was the last time we really gathered together 
in desperation and praying for God to do a movement in, through our church, in our society, in the Southern Maryland area, in our nation, standing out for the kingdom of God. When is it in the last time that we really said, Lord, we need you. We need you to work. We need you to be at work here. When are we in such a, how long are we going to go through COVID until we realize we really need to get together and pray? I know some of you say, but wait a minute, we can't because we have to wear masks. We're not allowed to be together. But we can still be together. So what if we're uncomfortable? Then we're uncomfortable for Jesus. (laughs) Then we're uncomfortable for a purpose. Then we're uncomfortable to move forward. This is what they were doing. It was uncomfortable for them to go through what they were going through. But they continue to believe that God had a purpose for them. So let's look at chapter 4, but as we do, let me just give you a little background real quick. See, in Acts chapter 3, really quick, is Peter and John went to the temple to pray. So we're looking through the book of Acts as they prayed. We're looking at the different episodes of prayer. And the Lord had them lay hands over a lame man at birth. And the Lord healed the lame man through Peter's command. God used Peter, he commanded it, and he was healed. And the man and the people were astounded and amazed by the miraculous healing. Peter then preached And the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, immediately arrested Peter and John for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it says they questioned them, and Peter spoke boldly with the famous statement that we know from Acts 4.12. It says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. Are we talking like that now? Are we, do we have that boldness? Are we willing to step in front of our officials and proclaim the resurrected Christ? Are we afraid what may happen? Are we afraid we may have conflict? Are we afraid that we may be called out? Are we afraid that we're going to be embarrassed as a church because everyone around us is going to say, did you hear what happened to Grace Church? They really stood up to those oppositions. And guess what happened? The pastor got arrested. Are we afraid of that news clip? See, these men spoke boldly and did not even have a concern. And then it says on, it says in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. It wasn't their wisdom or intellect that helped them get through their situation to fight the opposition. It was uneducated men who had a boldness being led by the Spirit to pray and depend on God to lead them, the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit's the agent through the book of Acts, and he's leading and working. He's working because their opposition is strong. They don't just want to arrest them. They eventually want to kill them. They wanted to kill Jesus. What happened? They didn't succeed. Why? Because God wouldn't allow it. It wasn't his part of his plan. And they would have attempted to kill the apostles But we'll see just in a prayer, they knew it wasn't part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan to establish the church. It was part of God's plan for the church to be a beacon and a light to the nation and to the world and all around them. It's God's plan for us to stand up against our opposition for the sake of the gospel. But we don't just do it because we think we're chicken. We do it, but we start with prayer. That's what they did. They were bold because they looked to God, and God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave them this boldness. Let me just give you a synopsis really quick of how this lays out. Just a little chart here. The teacher and me just wants to throw you. So the apostles were uneducated men. The Sanhedrin were educated. 
men of wisdom, intellect. Again, they wanted everybody to submit to them. The apostles were servants of God. The Sanhedrin were opponents of God. The apostles affirmed God's healing. The Sanhedrin denied God's healing of the lame man. Then he goes on and says, the apostles would not stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> He'd say, be quiet, slow it down. Sanhedrin threatened them not to talk about Jesus. Then he goes on and says, the apostles did not care if they would receive punishment. Sanhedrin wanted to punish them, but the people would not allow it. You see that, that this, is thir- this is verses 13 and in through 22. You see a summary of those passages, but we see what's happening. You see the men of God, the people who are starting the church, did not care of the consequences. They sought the Lord. But God had their back, and he covered them. And so often what that means is that God was leading them, and he cared more about his church than they did. He cared about his name more than they did. He is faithful to his name more than we are faithful to him. The Bible says that, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Read it, 11 through 13, that even while we're faithless, God remains faithful. And so we have a responsibility, and God's encouraged us to have a culture of boldness. But where does it come from? Again, does it come from just someone speaking out because they're afraid of being chicken? Or does it come from the power of God in us when we surrender and we submit and we repent and we confess our sin? That's where the power really comes from. Power doesn't come from in how we do church. Power doesn't come from in how well presented we are. Power doesn't come from the eloquent of speech because then I'm out. (laughs) It's not about that. Are we willing to surrender to God, submit, repent, confess our sin, and realize that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that God moves and changes lives? He can take a sinner who is desperate, who is deceptive, who lives a life of heinous sin, and save that person, forgive that person, give them the eternal life, the assurance of it, peace and joy and hope. Only God can. I can't. I can't even do that for myself. I am desperate for Jesus every day of my life because I know I cannot conjure up righteousness in my own life. And that's where we have to understand and see how important this is. Look when it says, when they were astonished in verse 23, if you want to turn to your, you know, to your Bibles there in front of you, of your Bibles, I would want to turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. We're going to read this, and it says this, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Let me just stop you there just for a second. Because we got to look at this. we got to stop there at verse. I'm going to leave it there for just a moment. But it's here. When they heard it, who are, the, who are they? Were those who Peter and John, the apostles, reported to. Peter and John reported to the apostles what had happened. Do you notice that it doesn't say what, you know, what, what exactly, what happened here? Did Peter and John go back and analyze the situation? Did it say they went back to analyze the situation? They went back to create a strategy and a plan and how to rebuke and rebuttal the Sanhedrin? Did you notice it didn't say that? It, says that? it didn't say that they gossip and slandered against them and saying how terrible they are and how we want to pray judgment against them. It doesn't say that, 
right? It just says, it, it doesn't even say that they propped themselves up and promoted them years of wisdom and intellect saying, oh, we're so grateful we have John and Peter on our team, that they were so bold to be able to speak. Oh, John and Peter, you're awesome. We want to prop you up. You are men of God. Does it say anything of that? I don't see that. All it says, the next verse in 13, it just said they were uneducated men. So what what really happened? What does it say? It says they lifted their voices together in one accord, in one mind. You know where that's from? Same verse, chapter 1, verse 14, same phrase, together in one accord, in one mind, in one mind, in one purpose for God's glory. They came together to pray. All together. That's where unity happens. That's where it comes. See, that's where the boldness begins. It doesn't begin with our wisdom and our intellect, but prayer. See, it's a pattern, a culture that you and I, as a church, we need to create every time we've got to come together because that's where the boldness comes. I have seen in my walk with Christ that the boldness that I have seen in every part of every church and all people was prayer. What brought me together with my brothers and sisters wasn't how well we could think through and strategize through a plan, but it's when we surrender to God and say, oh God, we need you. I was taught that in my first church. We prayed and we, you know, we, like I said last week, what did we do? We just hung around and we prayed for hours. He was like, well, okay, but did you strategize? Not really, we prayed. We strategized afterwards, but we prayed. We said that's the first thing. I remember we used to get together at a printing shop at 5.30 in the morning with 20 men. Because, and I was just one of the guys who was a lay person. The pastor wasn't even there. Occasionally he would come. We just had men. The owner of the printing shop said, let's have some prayer. And, man, we got together and we prayed. It was awesome. It was awesome. We saw answered prayer through our time together. I drew close to my brothers through prayer. That's what joins us together in establishment of a boldness by God. We need to be praying. And you might say, well, you know, Bruno, I do pray. I'm not questioning that. I'm not questioning that. But I asked the question, when was the last time we really all got together and prayed? I'm going to welcome us as a church to start doing that, that we can come together and pray, that we can be together as a body of Christ praying. That would be cool, wouldn't it be? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to be able to hear other people praying with their passion to be able to come together because we're better together and we can ask God to make us bold, that we can have a forecast of saying, God, we want to see you do great things. And we come together in unity. So how, do we, how can we establish this, this culture of boldness? Well, I think we can by first looking at the apostles, by standing firm with God, standing firm with God. Listen to this prayer that these men had coming together. Even some women were there. We know in chapter one it was also. It says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a prophetic word, a promise. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against, against It says, your holy servant against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah. For truly in this city, they were gathered together. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So now that which was prophetically stated in chapter 2 of Psalms 2, 1 and 2 is now being stated and fulfilled in this gathering. They recognize that. 
they say that they're gathered together against the holy servant Jesus. Lord in the Old Testament and now Jesus being the Lord. He says, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Meaning they gathered together. They came in one accord. They were trying to come together and fight against Jesus. He goes, now, Lord, you've done that for us. He goes, to do whatever your hand, your sovereign hand, and your plan has predestined us to take place. This is God in his sovereign hand. So it's sovereignty. It's the sovereignty of God. We stand firm with God, one in sovereignty. We see that it's quite clear here that's the sovereignty of God. That they see the hand of God, which is a reference to his sovereignty and his plan, his predestined and foreknowledge, his predestination is that he, he allowed all of this to happen. He allowed these nations to rage against the holy servant Jesus. Jesus had to go to the cross. That was his plan. We understand that. Even, even at the time of Isaiah, we have to see that when we look at Isaiah and, and particularly Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, when the king of Assyria and Sennacherib wanted to overtake Israel, they were encouraging the people of God to make peace with Assyria. And the Assyrian representative attempted to persuade the Israelites to not listen to their king, but to the king of Assyria. And when King Hezekiah heard this, what did he do? Isaiah 31.1, he says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He prayed. He looked to the Lord in desperation. A kingdom was about to take over Israel, and he prayed. He looked to God in his sovereign hand. And as you look at these verses right here in 16 through 20, it goes on, it says, it says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heaven and the earth, just like in verse 24. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib which he sent to mock the living God. Meaning he's saying, God, he's coming after you because I'm yours. I'm yours. That's boldness to say, God, I'm yours. I'm your child. I represent you. They're coming after you, Lord. They're taunting you. They're mocking you. God, what are you going to do about it? Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste of all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for there were no gods but the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That was deliverance, but he's like, Lord, they're making fun of you. They're mocking you. Lord, stand up, show yourself off. God, get the glory in this. And he did. God did get the glory. We know that the Assyrian king was killed, and God continued in his plan. It was perfect to move forward. So in his sovereignty, we stand firm knowing that no matter what we're going through, no matter the struggle, no matter how difficult it is, we know God is still sovereign. He's not mistaken by anything else in our culture, and we should understand that. Also, the Savior. He gave us the Savior. We stand firm with God through the Savior. We stand firm with God. We have a Savior, Jesus. Even in Acts 2, through 23, it says this, the men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was Peter again, speaking with boldness. He says, there's a savior. Why is it that when we go through difficult times in our society, we look to the problem and not to Jesus? (laughs) How come we get our eyes focused on the problem over here when God's saying to keep our eyes focused on him through his savior? Are we to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who died for us and died on the cross for our sin? It's Jesus. That's what we need to stand firm in. Number three, we need to know we're suffering. Suffering is part of the deal. It's part of the plan. It's not convenience. It's not comfort. It's not the good American way. (laughs) It's not making sure we have everything that we ever desired in life. This isn't our home. This isn't where we truly are to keep ourselves. Citizenship is not in America. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've got to remember that. (laughs) Because if we don't, we're going to think we're supposed to have comforts and conveniences and riches, and wealth, instead of suffering, which God made clear to us. I know we don't like to hear that, but the scriptures are clear on it. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12, Peter, or Paul said it himself, he therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me. This is his last book that he's writing before he passes away. He says, he says but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's bold. Even in his suffering, he stood firm. Even in the difficulty, he stood firm. You want to see whether we're standing firm as a people of God in our nation, as a universal church here in the nation? One out of every, I don't know, three people are not attending church anymore. The other third is switching churches, and the one-third is remaining. (laughs) I'm laughing because that's really what our church looks like today here in America. Yeah, that's what it's looking like. Little difficulty comes, a little, and we're, we're, we're frustrated. We don't like the way things are going. The paradigm is switched. God's switching the paradigm, and we don't know what to do. But doesn't the Bible say for us to pray? Doesn't the Bible say to focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Doesn't the Bible say to read the word of God and meditate on it daily? Doesn't the Bible say that we need to look to the Lord? Why are we looking to the problem? Why are we looking to our nation? Why do we look how the world is affecting us? It's affecting us. When are we going to stand up? When are we going to stand up in prayer? When are we going to stand up and be the people of God? See, I think that's what we can establish when we stand up against the world. And you might say, what are you trying to say, Bruno? Are you trying to say as our pastor you want to create a rebellion? No, no, don't go there because I'm not. No, I'm not saying that. But we're standing up against the world because the world shouldn't be affecting us, but it is. It's affecting us in how we think, how we live, how we are working through this psychological warfare because of a piece of cloth or because we're just letting it stop us. 
Yes, we have to navigate through it, but I'm not asking that we have all these events. I'm saying, can we get back to prayer? Can we create a culture of prayer? Listen to what these guys said. It says, and now, Lord, <laughs> and now, Lord, curios, almighty God, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> is that one of our prayers? Guys, is that one of our prayers today? I'm not hearing it from people, not that I have to, but I'm not sensing that from our people. We're not sensing a boldness of prayer. We're not sensing a boldness to move up because we're not sure. And there they have it. This is where we can learn from the apostles. They stood up. They looked upon. It says, and now look upon. What he's saying is, Lord, fix your eyes on these threats that have come against us. Meaning, Lord, we know you got our back, just like Hezekiah did. So the apostles are doing the same. And they say, grant, meaning it's a formal action to allow us, Lord, allow us in the midst of this persecution to be bold and speak against our opponents with the gospel. Help us, Lord, to stand up. This isn't about a personality. It's not about our DNA. I have seen God take introverts and make them bold. And I have seen God make extroverts and shut them down. Because it's not about a personality-driven portion here. This is about being driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we say, God, you see these threats. Lord, help us to be bold. Because we don't know how to decipher between being bold and being rebellious. But if you got to think about it, they were rebellious, but they were bold. Yes, they prayed, and then they protested. Yes, they protested. This is a protest. They're protesting against the officials. But they're being led by the Spirit of God. And so they come with this. I know this seems great, but see, the trial didn't slow them down. It gave them fuel. <laughs> It gave them fuel to say, we want to stand up against our opponents. We need to be bold in the name of Jesus. Not bold because, well, I'm not chicken. I'm going to go stand up to these guys. No, you don't want to do that. That could be a mess. But we want to be led by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we can't have a little bit of doubt and fear, but we go because the Spirit of God told us to go. And we pray and we ask God and we say, God, make us bold for your name. Where's the difference between us and the world today? We have the Holy Spirit in us. They don't. So what are we doing with it? Are we conceding to the world? Are we going to be bold? That's what God's calling us to do. God, they knew God would grant them this boldness. Because listen to the, last, the second part of verse 30. They knew that God would grant them this boldness. It says, while you stretch your hand, while you stretch your sovereign hand to heal. Lord, we're asking you to give us boldness while you're doing that. Meaning we know you're going to do it. We are confident you're going to do it. You are God. We're asking you to please do it. God, in the name of Jesus, do it. And now it's being done. God's healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. They're coming against your holy servant, Jesus. We're asking you to be on the offense, Lord, and do a magnificent work. Miraculous work. Only God can do. Super intended for God. Supernatural. That's what we want to believe. We have to believe, but we have to believe, and that's a culture of boldness because we're believing that God's going to do it. We have to stand up. You know, in D.C., um, particularly um, 
uh, if you guys ever heard of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist, well, D.C. had to settle $220,000 with Capitol Hill Baptist, which is Mark Devers, the pastor there. And as they did, it was Mark Devers had to stand up against them because D.C. continued to say that the churches couldn't meet together. And if they, even if they had masks on and social distancing, even outside, they weren't allowing them to, to meet together. And they won, they filed suit and they won. And they won because, you know, Mark Dever just wanted to make sure, he said, ultimately, we are in a building. He goes, we don't want to be. So ultimately, the church is not something we want to be as in a building. He goes, but it's a people we want to be with. That's why the Christians always gather, so that we can be the people of God and do the things Jesus has called us to do. And he stood up and they fought and they won the suit because DC tried to stop them from meeting. And churches all around the United States were winning battles because they continued to try to stop them. They continued to try to stop them from what God was doing. Even we know Dr. John MacArthur also filed suit against the Los Angeles County and the state for not permitting Grace Community Church to meet in person. They refused to live stream their services and continued meeting in person against all regulations. Now, some would say, wow, man, that's really rebellious. But see, it wasn't the fact that he said, and whether you like him or not, it wasn't the fact that he was just saying, you're not going to allow me to do this. But he said, you're allowing all these other outside events where people are close together, not wearing masks, having protests of civil injustice and racial injustice, but you're not allowing us to meet in a building. Even with masks on, you're not allowing any of it. And he says, I'm fighting. And he fought, and they were trying to take their property from him, and they were going back and forth. We know the story. We've heard of it. And then what happened? At the end, God won. God won because he stood up. They prayed, and they stood up because they believed it wasn't that they couldn't meet in a building. It's because they let everyone else meet but them. And although it might not be as similar here in Maryland, the idea is that they stood up and they prayed and came together in community for the sake, corporately for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it was about. So that's what we want to make sure is that we understand too. So lastly, we establish a culture of standing out, being daringly different, standing out. That's what they did. Standing out, it says, and when you have to stand firm, stand up and stand out, he says, and when they had prayed, the place which they were gathering together was shaken. God responded by saying, I approve of this. I approve of this message. Because God shook the ground. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what we need to be doing as a people of God. Not trying to figure it out, not trying to come up with another report of how we can tell the other side is wrong. You noticed when they got together, they didn't analyze it, they didn't strategize, they didn't plan, they didn't put the, the officials down, they didn't speak against it, they didn't rebuttal, they prayed together. When was the last time we prayed together? Yeah, crickets. We haven't. We haven't. And I'll put it on me. We need to get together. We need to pray. We need to individually say, am I for Jesus or against Jesus? And I know everybody's saying, oh, I'm for Jesus. Of course you're going to say that. But now it's our step. Next step is, 
Let's put it into action. Let's pray together as a people of God. Could you imagine? Does the world feel the ground shaking around us, beneath us? Meaning, metaphorically speaking here, are we really shaking the grounds? We're barely getting by. We're not even surviving. We potentially are leaning towards dying if we don't get our acts together. So in a couple weeks, I'm inviting everybody to come and pray together. It may even happen on a Sunday. Yeah, we might just kill the paradigm. Is that all right with you guys? (laughs) Can we come together and pray? (laughs) We're going to kill the paradigm for a Sunday. (laughs) Is that okay? I don't want you guys being up in arms. He didn't even preach the word of God. We're going to pray. 